welcome to Speak Your Truth Now. This is Amanda, and with me I have Mallory Harris, and we also have a special guest today. So before we get into our topic for this episode, which is about Black employment, we wanted to kind of catch up on the news that's kind of been going on since our last episode. It's been about a month. And, um, you know, as everyone, we're going to be talking about COVID. (laughs) (laughs) But as it relates to our topic, so um, we're talking about Black employment, and I think it's important to note that because of COVID, a lot of people have left the workplace. And we've seen that um, a good portion of those people are people of color. And I was recently looking at some of the of the statistics, and I saw that more than 2 million women left the workforce. And I was just really stunned by that. Yeah. And I think, you know, they're kind of talking about how, you know, this may be a big issue going forward, that even Mm -hmm. as the economy kind of recovers, um, you know, we were making a lot of ground when it came to women in more leadership roles and things like that. And so people are really concerned about that. But as we know, too, um, disproportionately, women of color lost their jobs. And, you know, on top of the fact that COVID has affected um, the Black community, not to mention Indigenous folks as well. And so really... um, it's, it's kind of frustrating, and I know that things were looking really good for African Americans before COVID. I think unemployment was at record lows, and wages were rising, and so to kind of, you know, have this happen with COVID and whatnot, um, it really has put like a question mark on a lot of the advances that have been made. So I think people are going to have to work harder now to, Mm -hmm. you know, try to diversify their workforces. And it's going to take, you know, meaningful change. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more later on. But I wanted to go ahead and introduce our guest. Her name is Marisa. And she comes to us via Instagram. Uh, We are also related. So I don't... (laughs) But she was very interested in the topic of black people in the workplace or people of color in the workplace. And I was really excited because, you know, on this podcast, we want to talk about these social justice topics, um, but we definitely want it to be driven by the people that are listening. And so I think this is going to be really great. And I'll go ahead and let Marisa kind of introduce herself and, you know, why she's interested in talking about this today. So Marisa, thank you for coming and I'll give you the floor. Cool. Hello. Um, A little bit about myself. I am graduating with a bachelor's degree in accounting this May. Super excited. Uh, I plan on working in the public accounting field, specifically in audit. And in this field and in accounting as a whole, you don't really see too many people of color. We're definitely a minority. 
but I got a opportunity to intern for a public accounting firm. And when I got there, I was so surprised to see that no one on my team looked like me, not one person. And going in, I expected to be a minority, but not the only one. And while I was working, I kind of felt a little bit isolated, maybe. Like, it started to kind of make me, like, question things, like, over start overthinking things, especially as a Black woman uh, in the workplace. I'm thinking about, oh, like, you know, is it okay for me to wear my hair like this? Like, you know, I have natural, naturally curly hair. So, you know, is that going to be, like, deemed professional, especially because I don't see anybody else around the workplace, you know, walking around with the with the same hair as I have. And um, just, mm-hmm. like, different things like that would pop in my head. And I think just in general, I would have loved to see more people that looked like me, especially, like, in higher positions, because I felt like I wanted to know that it was possible for someone like me, you know, to be able to be in that position one day or even like get advice from someone who is like a woman of color who works in you know management level positions and how she got there and her struggles and how she made it there. I would have loved to like have that kind of guidance and there just wasn't that. So now that I'm getting ready to enter into the workforce, that is like extremely important for me when I start, you know, choosing where I'm going to work and where I'm going to start my career. So that's why I really wanted to have this conversation and get more people informed on the subject because it's really interesting. So, yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, and thank you for sharing with us. I know that you had a slightly different upbringing than I did. And you know, if you'd want to kind of elaborate on this, I was thinking about this the other day and talking to Mallory, but there is a age gap between me and Marisa. And so when I was growing up, I moved around a lot. My mom was in the military. My dad was in the military. And so I had the opportunity to see a lot of different people, like in my lower grades, like when we lived in Italy and different places, I felt like The kids that were in my classes were very diverse, but as I kind of got into middle school and going up, I started to see that a lot of the people in my classes were white, and I was usually one or the only one of, you know, people that were Black or Hispanic. And so I feel like I'm used to that, and I think I had a different experience coming into the workforce, I kind of expected to be the token or be, you know, one of very few black women, if any, in my department or whatever it was. And I truly was in every job that I've had. And so I've had a different experience. And so I thought it was really interesting what you were explaining, but I was just curious if you want to explain to people, you know, what was your experience coming through school what were the kind of people that were in your classes and and the kind of friends that you had yeah so I think in elementary school it was definitely like a good mix it was pretty diverse and then when I got to middle school my mom had bused me out to another school out of our district where it was I was mostly just like you said like the token black kid I mostly 
yeah, there was maybe a few black kids in my class, but then I went back to where I was, I went to high school near my house and it was very, like, it was mostly African-Americans. So I think that kind of being around people who looked like me all the time and then going to a college as well that has a strong percentage of Black people, I kind of was thinking that maybe there would be more <laughs> um, more people of color, that I would see more people of color. But yeah, I guess it is different when, whenever I think about it. Like, I was around a lot of people of color in high school, and I just kind of got used to that. Like, it was just like a normal thing. And now that I'm in the the workforce and stuff like that, you don't see as many at least in where I am. Yeah, well, thank you for explaining that a little bit. And that kind of helps us understand your background and where you're coming from. So I thought it'd be a good idea to kind of start from the beginning and get a good idea of what employment has looked like in America for Black people and kind of wanted to chat with you all about that. Of course, we know that African-Americans were brought to America as slaves and where employment really starts was after slavery. But as we know, when slaves were freed, it wasn't as simple as just going to the pharmacy or going to the general store and applying for a job. (laughs) (laughs) There were a lot of issues that they had to deal with And there's several things that we could talk about, but um, I know, Mallory, that we've talked a little bit about chain gangs and Mm -hmm. and convict labor and things like that in some of our past episodes. Sharecropping. Um, And also, you know, after uh, slavery ended, you know, there were a whole bunch of new laws and legislation that were passed to, you know, find other ways to oppress, you know, African Americans. Like you were saying before, like, it's not like, you know, slavery ended, and then everything was just, you know, magically better. Like, no, uh, white people found other ways to be terrible and awful and enact horrible legislation. Um, And I mean, and this continues all the way throughout the 20th century. Um, And, you know, even something like, like the New Deal, for example, which is, you know, often talked about in such positive terms. Um, And it was, you know, you know, it did do some really great things for labor. But all of the great things it did for labor, like the 40 hour work week and abolishing child labor, and a few other stipulations that it created, whenever that law was passed, people of color were left out of those protections and out of those laws. Uh, so it really doesn't truly begin until, you know, the Civil Rights Act in the 60s um, that we see, you know, a marked change. Yeah, exactly. That's when we actually see African-Americans in employment for them kind of take off is after the Civil Rights Act when they have that protection against uh, discrimination in the workplace. When you think about that, it's a very short history of yes. employment for us as a whole, you know, like we were saying, the first jobs that Black people had were agricultural jobs, sharecroppers, etc. And Black people in the South were very poor. I mean, mm-hmm. the poverty was overwhelming. And not to mention that agriculture was one of the few things that Black people could do. I mean, remember mm-hmm. that 
They had no education. They had no money. And white people weren't going to start hiring them for jobs. So a lot of them just went back into the same type of work that they were doing and could barely get by. And we don't really talk about that. But the fact that the slaves were freed and there was no type of system in place to get them into work or Mm -hmm. to get them land or things like that is just a big letdown and where a lot of the issues stem from. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting when I was reading about this convict labor and the chain gangs, Mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of those black men who basically were arrested and were made to work for free, most of them were arrested for being unemployed. And it just kind of boggles the mind that these slaves were freed and then a huge majority of them are put right back into this like type of slavery system. I think that it definitely um, is a precursor to, you know, what we see now as the institutionalization of a lot of black folks and black men specifically. Mm -hmm. So like you were saying, this is kind of how employment started Black people were mostly in these agricultural jobs. There was something known as the Great Migration, where African Americans started to kind of move out of the South. And that was during the industrial era, like after World War I, when the country was getting into like steel making and we had all the railroads and stuff like that. And so a lot of African Americans were able to move out of those low-wage agricultural jobs and move into cities. And so we see that the next area that jobs were growing in were those manufacturing jobs, which we know declined later on, later on in the 80s. (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) So yeah, that disproportionately affected Black men as well. I know that, you know, some people probably remember we talked about Tulsa a little bit, but The fact that even in the early 1900s, when there was prosperity in Black communities like Tulsa, where they had Black Wall Street, there was a lot of racism and a lot of white folks did not want to see Black companies and Black people creating their own wealth. And so we see what happened there in Tulsa, which was just horrible to to learn and just really know more about and Really surprised that we never really covered that in school. Yeah, I did not learn about it in school or in college or in grad school for that matter. Um, It wasn't until the last few years that I actually learned about it for the first time, which is a huge failing of every educational system I've been through. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It really is. And I guess now when you kind of look at where we can start off now is like the Civil Rights Act that really spurred this increase of African-Americans in employment. And it was great that this was happening. But once again, we have Black folks moving from agriculture to manufacturing and now into other low-wage jobs. Mm -hmm. And that has persisted till today, where a lot of these low-wage or low-paying jobs are disproportionately held by Black people in America. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into this later, but uh, this is why it's really, really important to raise the minimum wage and why that would be so beneficial to millions of people, but especially people of color who work these sort of jobs disproportionately. But we'll get into that much. I've got a lot to say about a lot later (laughs) on, so we'll get into that later, but just a little preview of what's to come. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, I think that's a good point to make. I was talking to a professor a while back and we were talking about social justice issues. She knows a lot more about this than I do. So I asked her, what's the quickest way to help out black people? Like, what could we do that could just knock some things out systemically, like very quickly? Because mm-hmm. we need to do things that can happen quickly and can have a big impact. She said exactly what you said is increasing the minimum mm-hmm. wage, bringing people out of poverty would have such a huge impact on the black community. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, that minimum wage... Um, is, is a big deal. And I think it's a bigger deal than a lot of people realize. Yes. I'm holding my tongue for everything I want to say later, but yes to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I know it's uh, Women's History Month. We know that there is a pay gap when it comes to women. There's definitely a pay gap when it comes to Black folks compared to white folks in America. And that on our current trajectory, it will take 95 years for Black employees to reach talent parity in the private sector. And so not only are Black people in these lower wage paying jobs, but they're also not being employed at the same level as white folks across America. And if we don't do anything about this, if we don't have that 12% representation of black folks, which is roughly the the population of black people in America is where mm-hmm. that 12% comes from, then it'll take us 95 years to see that. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so a lot of the things that you know we hear about, not only minimum wage, but a lot of issues that are coming up as far as mentoring programs and things like that to try to get black people up and into these private company roles and even into executive roles is really important. And I think that will help us kind of cut down the amount of time that it will take to see that. That's insane. You know, there has to be some sort of, we can't just rely on the goodwill of, you know, people to, you know, take these initiatives themselves and implement them at their company. You know, this is something that I think has got to come from above as well. You know, there's got to be some sort of federal accountability and federal statistics and records of all of this. Like there's got to be, you know, a bigger push than just trying to put pressure on individual companies or businesses to, you know, take the charge and lead this yeah i mean as we've seen we've had programs like affirmative action and things like that and they've only moved the needle so much Mm -hmm. and you know we're still seeing this gap here private companies have been coming out especially in the last year and talking about how they want to increase the amount of black folks latinx people in their um, companies but really when it comes down to it Other companies have been saying that for years and years, too. You know, when the tech industry got a lot of flack um, years back about the representation of Black people and women, you know, in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And eight, ten years later, not much has really changed as far as the representation. Yeah. And they've thrown money at it. Silicon Valley money at that. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) they've partnered with different organizations and... You know, they've gone into schools and done enrichment programs and 
all kind of things, but it's barely moving the needle. And so, like you said, it's like really at the end of the day, we have to see some kind of big push or big movement yeah. um, to kind of see things actually change. But before we get more into, you know, the minimum wage and things like that, I wanted to talk about workplace expectations and kind of what Marisa was talking about earlier is I think her generation is definitely looking for a more diverse workforce. They're looking for employers who value having a diverse workforce. And I think that that's really interesting. And I think the same thing largely with millennials like us is generationally things are different. We're not just going out there and trying to find a job that gives us a check mm-hmm. at the end of the week. What we're really looking for is these commitments to social justice issues as well as economic issues and sustainability across the board. And so I thought that that's really interesting. And I think that that's you know only going to just push organizations more and more to do this work and to, and to make a change as quickly as they can. Yeah, I think it's really great that uh, millennials and Gen Z have been so aware of our value as workers and, you know, what we could bring to an institution and, you know, also not wanting to give 40 plus hours a week of our time to a company that's just like all white people everywhere or that, you know, has like a token, you know, Latinx person or a token black person, whatever. Like, I, I think that's really awesome that, you know, people our age and people Marisa's age are, you know, really starting to recognize that, like, no, like, I don't have to just work for anyone who will give me a paycheck. Like, I have a say in this and, you know, it, it matters where I spend my time and who I'm working for. Yeah. And I think companies are noticing that too. And they are trying to work towards that. I recently was in a uh, competition, an accounting competition of sorts, I guess, uh, with this big accounting firm in Atlanta. And the competition was strictly for people of color for scholarship money. I think the top prize was $14,000 to help go towards finishing your degree in accounting. So, and it was only for people of color. It was, yeah, it was a really cool event you could tell that the company really valued diversity. So I think that the more we talk about it, the more companies will start listening and things will start to change. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the intention is there. It's just the follow through with a lot of organizations and how willing are they to go that extra mile? You know, even though discrimination is illegal, systemically, we can see, like we said, with the type of work that Black folks have, the rate at which they go to college and get that um, higher education, and then they're able to get those better paying jobs, you know, all of this feeds back into this big issue that we have, which is this gap in parity. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, people our age are coming into the workplace and they're having these expectations of diversity and inclusion and representation. Like, it's strange, right, in some ways, but not really, that we're having this conversation because, you know, we've had anti-discrimination laws for decades at this point. You know, like, theoretically, like, if the laws were written well and they're doing their job and they're being enforced properly, like, 
theoretically, like, why are we having this conversation? Like, why does discrimination still exist if there's, you know, so many laws that are written to prevent discrimination? Like, how does that happen? And, like, I think, you know, that kind of goes back to a little bit about what Marisa was saying at the beginning. There are all these new and subtle ways in a company that racism and discrimination can be experienced or enacted and you know that's you know it's often not going to be like some really overt and obvious it's like people you know passing on a black woman for a promotion because you know it wasn't the right quote-unquote fit or not hiring a latinx person because there just wasn't the right fit for the company uh, which is you know just another way it's a dog whistle really of saying well this person's not like us and we don't want them here but we can't say that so we're just gonna say it's not a good fit and like this goes back to what we've talked about on this podcast a million times before this idea that racism it's not just like bad actors and bad people it's not one individual person causing all this it's a whole system and you know like right now like so many of our ways of responding to accusations of discrimination rely on that bad actor model of well did someone call you a racial slur no they didn't then okay well then it's not discrimination so it it shifted in a lot of ways and it's made it little bit more murky and you know a little underneath the surface how racism and discrimination are enacted today in the workplace even though theoretically we have all these great anti-discrimination laws that should be doing that for us yeah and i think you make a good point about fit because that's used a lot and another word that gets a lot of heat now is culture you know Mm -hmm. are they going to fit into our culture And I think that can be really dangerous, like you said, because how are you defining fit or how are you defining the culture of an organization? If it's a whole bunch of white men, what is that culture like? And is someone that's, you know, is a woman going to fit in with that culture or a black person going to fit in? And, you know, are they looking for someone that looks and thinks like them? Mm hmm. Like we said, systemic problems, you know, need systemic solutions. So it takes some extra work. It really takes an organization looking at their policies, looking at their procedures and saying, why aren't we seeing more people of color? Why aren't we seeing more females in our organization? And and what are we doing that is keeping those people out? I think another really interesting thing a lot of organizations love doing employee referrals. So when they have a job open, they usually say, you know, hey, everybody, we have a job. If you know anybody, let them know that we're interested. And it's been shown over the years that employee referrals are great. Um, It's a cheap way to get people into your talent pool. Mm -hmm. And they perform well overall because they have that connection to someone who's already there and you know most likely they align really well with with those employees who you know in most cases are high performing employees and so you know if you think about that and you think about your workplace and how you don't have a lot of black people you don't have a lot of females in those leadership roles well your employees when they're reaching out to their friends who are they reaching out to? People that look just like them mm-hmm. in most cases. So if you continually hire people that have all the qualifications, 
and that, you know, were referred in by someone, then you're never going to see those people come into your organization. You have to be yeah. intentional about yeah. a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Like that's the thing, like what you said about, you have to be intentional about it. You know, absolutely. Like you have to ask yourself hard questions like, well, why am I inclined to pass on this person for this promotion? And why am I more inclined to give it to this person? Is it because, you know, I feel more comfortable around them or whatever? Like it, you know, it involves having a lot of uncomfortable conversations with yourself, with other people at your workplace, with hires up at your workplace. Um, it really does involve a lot of intentionality and really deliberately thinking about your actions and what you're doing and what kind of culture that's creating. Yeah, so I know that we wanted to talk about the, our capitalist society and kind of <laughs> how that's fed into these issues that we've had over the years, you know, with black employment. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, like every episode of this podcast, here I am talking shit about capitalism, but here we are again. Like, you know, capitalism has wreaked so much havoc on our world and continues to wreak so much havoc on our world. Actually, like how I started thinking about this topic was, you know, I was reading some of the initial notes that you had made on this episode and you're reading some of the articles you had sent. I was like, okay, like, you know, this is like really good data, really cool statistics and facts, but so much of this relies on corporations. And like, we all know, like corporations are not your friends. They're, they're just not. They, they do not exist for your betterment. And so the question I started asking myself was, you know, like, what role in the past and today have corporations played in continuing systemic racism? Because, like, with so many things today, like, you can't talk about them without also talking about capitalism as well. And, you know, even talk about, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. real quick, you know, his last few years, uh, he also started to focus on economic issues. You know, he supported the sanitation strike in Memphis. He organized the Poor People's March. And so in the last few years, MLK was starting to see the link between capitalism, racism, everything pretty much in the world. You know, studies have been done to try to find sort of the best and most efficient way to go about bringing about big systemic change. And, you know, studies show that repealing right to work laws, funding agencies we already have, like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, increasing the minimum wage, we're back at the minimum wage again, and also eliminating uh, tipped wage positions, you know, positions like servers that rely on tips to make up the difference because they don't make the federal minimum wage per hour. And so doing things like that, and also, you know, things like universal basic income, enacting programs like that would do a lot to begin to reverse a lot of the inequality we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And when you brought up the EEOC, it kind of reminded me, oh, right to work laws. That's what reminded me about unions mm, and yeah. how unions were such a great thing for black workers because they were able to join these unions and they were able to bargain um, for better wages. The right to work laws really were combating being able to unionize and come together and try to fight for benefits, fair wages and things like that. And I think that that's something a lot of people really don't think about. 
Yeah, and, you know, spoiler, uh, most of the states that have right-to-work laws are in the South, and as we know, uh, the South has the largest percentage of Black people in its population, so, you know, that's right there, you know, a large concentration of your Black workforce, you know, is in a state where it's a right-to-work state. You can be fired at will, essentially, and there's very little guaranteed rights for workers. Yeah, and, you know, that kind of fits right back into what you were talking about earlier is if organizations are able to fire at will and not have to explain, you know, why they're letting you go, then there's no way to prove if there was any discrimination. If you had mm -hmm. um, situations that made you feel isolated, if you had um, a manager who, you know, said certain things that obviously came off as racist, if you felt like you weren't able to advance because of the color of your skin, it's going to be really hard to make those cases with the mm -hmm. right to work laws. You know, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, like this, I mean, raising the minimum wage, like, it's honestly one of the easiest things that we could do that would solve so much inequality. 20% of the workforce would see an increase in wages. 20%, that's a fifth of the people working in the U.S. would see benefits and see more wages from that. Here's a great example, I think, that encapsulates a lot of what we have talked about uh, on this episode, you know, with individual businesses and corporations taking initiatives and broader policy reform. So let's talk about McDonald's. <laughs> so McDonald's, um, they announced back in February of this year that they are going to start tying 15% of executive bonuses to meeting diversity slash inclusion targets, which... Whew. Okay, like, let's unpack this for a second. <laughs> um, so, first of all, take, you know, this money that you're giving your executives as a bonus, take that money and use it to pay the people that you're hiring. Use it to pay, you know, all those diversity and inclusion targets that you're trying to make. Take that money and pay people of color to work for you. Like, why? I, I don't, I don't give a that you've pledged to, you know, tie this to meeting diversity goals. Like you're just taking more money from yourself and using it to right. increase your own wealth and your own riches and hoarding your own money. And then, you know, touting that as this progressive good thing McDonald's is doing when at the same time, for the last several years, um, whenever McDonald's workers have been involved in the Fight for 15 movement, uh, McDonald's has a whole intel group monitoring these employees and surveilling them and monitoring their activity in the fight for 15. If there's protest plan, any activity, you know, anything they said on social media about the fight for 15. McDonald's, you know, like they're saying on the one hand, like we're tying 15% of our executive bonus to meeting diversity and inclusion. You know, they're saying that on the one hand, and then they're turning around and gathering data on their employees to use against them because their employees are fighting for a $15 minimum wage, which isn't even a living wage, but that that's definitely off topic from this episode. <laughs> so I will stop myself right there at living wage. <laughs> well, it's really hard to talk about black employment without talking about economics and 
um, the minimum wage. It's just mm -hmm. really hard to do that. As we've seen over the years, organizations have gotten bigger and bigger. They've gotten more prosperous. Organizations are making millions and billions of dollars in America. And meanwhile, the, you know, the cost of living has increased and mm -hmm. wages have not increased since I believe 2009. Yeah, since Obama um, raised the federal minimum wage, yep. Yeah, so just think about that. I mean, organizations are more successful than ever mm -hmm. and they've been able to pocket that money, that extra money that they're not <laughs> you know, using to pay their workers and to make their executives richer. And I think you made a really good point because I hadn't even thought about this when I heard that, and I've heard other organizations do this too as part of their initiatives to get more black people um, into their workplace. The argument that they make is that they can force their organizations to make it a priority if they tie it to pay. And so they believe that tying these goals, these diversity and inclusion goals to the executive's pay is going to motivate them to meet the goals. On the surface, when you hear that, it's like, okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. There would be outrage if it was tied to their salary. First of all, there would be outrage and mm -hmm. people would be like, that's ridiculous. Um, and so a lot of companies have tied it to the bonuses. Yeah. Um, and imagine that, you know, a yeah. lot of these organizations, executives get, always get bonuses of some, some type, whether it's 15, 20%, et cetera. It's a given. Um, as long as the organization is profitable, they will make bonuses. And so what they've done is they've taken a step back and said, okay, well, we'll tie it to bonuses. But you know, like I said, on the surface, it looks good. But like you said, the bonus money is millions of dollars in some cases, especially organizations yeah. like McDonald's, Amazon, Walmart, Google, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Walmart. Yeah. Walmart's another one. Why not take that money, like you said, and put it right into the solution, which is mm -hmm. paying your workers more and or doing both, putting that money towards um, initiatives that can get more black and brown people into your workforce and up the corporate ladder into your leadership positions. Because like we've talked about, there are plenty of organizations like Walmart, Amazon, who on the surface look very diverse. But when you look at the hierarchy of their organization, you see that all the black and brown people are down at the bottom, mm -hmm. working once again, the low wage paying jobs in every situation. Um, so here we are again. And as we see, when we get into the higher paying positions, leadership positions, those that are actually making decisions, in the organization, it's the same people that we've always seen for the past mm -hmm. several hundred years. It's yep. white males that are driving the organizations. And so you make a very good point. I, I had never, <laughs> I didn't really thought about it in that way. And mm -hmm. 
if the organizations really wanted to make a change as quickly as possible, they could do that with this extra money. Um, mm-hmm. They could go ahead and just pay their workers a living wage. Yes. We all have to get on the bandwagon in some way or another. And I've found that I'm trying to shop at places or do business with people who are paying their workers a living wage. Yes. It's hard to get at that information and you have to spend a little bit of time researching. But for example, I am trying to stay away from um, grocery stores that are, you know, they're easier, they're cheaper, but they don't pay their workers well. And I pay more for my groceries um, by going to a grocery store that pays a living wage. Everyone there is above the poverty level. They're paid so that they can live above the poverty level Mm -hmm. and they have full benefits, which is something that I think is the bare minimum that an organization (laughs) can do. (laughs) As we're talking about this, Mallory, what would you say to people who say minimum wage jobs were never meant to sustain a grown adult or meant to to support them and pay their rent and utilities and pay for kids that they need to find another job, they need to get out of minimum wage jobs? What would you say about that? Because I think that's an argument that comes up a lot. Yeah, my succinct response to that is that is factually untrue because back in the 1950s when the minimum wage kept pace with inflation, when it was about at the same as inflation, you were able to support a family if you worked a full-time 40-hour a week job that paid minimum wage. You were able to do things that I will probably never be able to do, like buy a home support your wife and children. What it comes down to for me is anyone who is working 40 hours a week does not deserve to live in poverty. No one deserves to live in poverty. Let me make that very clear. No one should be living in poverty, especially when there's all this money just sitting around in people's bank accounts in this country that they don't pay taxes on. No one should be living in poverty. You know, there's no reason to. We we have enough resources to support everyone. But if you are working 40 hours a week, you should be able to provide for yourself and your family and not have to scrape by or do without stuff or live with roommates or live with another family. 40 hours a week is a hell of a lot of time. And all that time that we spend dedicated you know, 40 hours a week of our life for decades of our life. I think if you do that, you are entitled to live just a certain lifestyle where all of your basic needs are met. And by that, I also mean, you know, you, all of your basic needs are met and you have a little cushion, you know, you're able to go out and do fun things occasionally, you know, take a trip once or twice a year. Go to the movies with your friends if we can ever do that again in a non-COVID world, (laughs) you know, and like, this is really not radical at the end of the day, right? Like me saying that, you know, everyone deserves, if you work 40 hours a week, you should not have to worry about your material existence. Like that's not a radical claim to make. 
but it has become such a radical belief in this country because so many people are so in love with capitalism and think that, you know, they could be, you know, you know, it's it's not their turn yet, but they could be the one, you know, they could be the next um, Walton family, the next Jeff Bezos, whatever, <laughs> when in fact, you know, more Americans are much closer to being homeless than they are to being a millionaire or a billionaire. Right. You know, I, I read, of all things, a tweet about this several years ago that was like, you know, I don't know who needs to hear this, but you're significantly closer to being homeless than you are a billionaire. Have some class solidarity. And I was like, oh, wait. Oh, wait, that's right. <laughs> like, that that's totally right. You know, for almost everyone in this country, everyone is much closer to being homeless than a billionaire. And so... I've gone so far off track from your original question, so I'm just going to stop myself right there. But yeah, so I, if you work a minimum wage job, you should be able to afford, you know, you should be able to support yourself, period. And what do you guys think about whenever people say, oh, if we raise the minimum wage, then businesses and business owners are going to have to fire more people and it's going to cause more unemployment because they can't afford to pay people that much. I know that there's been studies done that have looked at the effect um, raising the minimum wage will have and there is some data that shows that jobs will be lost. And so a lot of people that are against raising the minimum wage have have cited those studies. For example, I think there was one that was like, you know, 1.2 million jobs are going to be lost over the time um, that it takes for us to get, you know, ramp up to $15. Because once again, remember, we're not even jumping to $15. Uh, yes. It's over a, a period of time. Mm -hmm. And the argument that I've seen is they've looked at this other times that they've had to raise the minimum wage and the actual effect on hiring or letting people go because organizations can't afford it is very minimal. Um, it's actually a lot smaller than people think. Um, and another great thing about this is when you are trying to raise a minimum wage, like Congress, um, different people in Congress have talked about, not only are they talking about raising the minimum wage, but they're also talking about investing into small businesses to allow them to pay their workers a minimum wage. Because that's another argument mm -hmm. that people have had is that what about the small businesses, you know, that they can't, they'll have to close their doors because they can't afford to pay um, their employees minimum wage, which is, you know, a problem in itself. And we all need to just start paying people a living wage. If we can't do that, we don't need to own a business. Mm -hmm. But that's the thing is, it's not always as simple as that. And with these initiatives, like minimum wage, there are other programs that have been proposed to incentivize small businesses to pay their workers that minimum wage and there are ways to help those small businesses. What really is a lot of people's concern is the the big organizations don't want to do it. And they're yeah. the ones that are going to have the easiest go of, of making the minimum wage uh, happen for their workers. Yeah, so I would 
I would say too that you know those big corporations they also have lobbyists that they pay to go lobby Congress to not raise the minimum wage. They also have that going for them. Uh, but also to answer your question, Marisa, I think it's a complicated issue, right? Like raising the minimum wage will you know cause wages everywhere to raise up or to go up because you know if you if all of a sudden you're paying unskilled labor you know fifteen dollars an hour, then you have to start paying your skilled labor more. Uh, but the thing is, like, the cost of living is going up no matter what. The cost of living has been increasing, you know, exponentially, it feels like sometimes. You know, so, like, if you start paying people more money, if you start paying them a living wage, that means they have more money that they can then spend and put back into the economy and that that will then create, you know, new sources of revenue and new positions for companies because all of a sudden people won't have to, you know, have a spreadsheet to track every dime that comes into their bank account every month. And so, like, there are ways that you can go about increasing wages without wreaking financial havoc and devastation on people who would truly materially be affected by it. Like, I don't give a shit if a McDonald's CEO misses their bonus one quarter, but there are ways you can go about it so that other workers don't get left behind in the process. And this is also one of the points for universal basic income is that, you know, in the coming years, you know, so many jobs will likely be replaced with automation um, that, you know, there's going to be all this automation and there's going to be all this money floating around in the economy, all this money that could be taxed. Um, you know, that, you know, if we continue at the pace we're going and continue moving towards automation, this is where, you know, something like universal basic income comes in to make up for those differences that come in with, you know, how how much society has changed over the last several years. Yeah. So I think this all goes back into saying, like, we can't really talk about social justice without talking about wages. And that's kind of how we end up here um, when we're talking about Black employment and why it's so important you know these things like minimum wage and why a lot of people of color should should be on the bandwagon when it comes to really advocating for this kind of thing regardless of if you you make minimum wage or not yeah it benefits everyone but yeah i think that's a really good question yeah it does it benefits everyone in the end and marisa if you have anything else to share with us you know you're free to do that i think that we've had you know, really good conversation and kind of talked about um, the systemic issues and, you know, kind of the long road that Black people have taken to to get to where they are right now. And there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, like we've said, Mm -hmm. Black people are, you know, systemically paid less. They're in these lower wage positions and they are in these essential worker positions. And as we've seen with COVID, they're the first people to lose these jobs too. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about the prison system and whatnot and the effect that it's had on Black men specifically and trying to get back into work or, you know, just keeping them out of the workforce to begin with as well. You know, I think that's another important topic, mm-hmm. but definitely leads us down another road and I think we should have a an episode on private prisons specifically yes, too. Absolutely. Um 
for sure. But yeah, Marisa, thank you again for, for coming on. And if you have anything else to say, feel free. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think everything said was, there was some really good points, I feel like, as far as what's next and how what we should do to help. And that's what these conversations always lead me to sometimes is like, I'm hearing like the history of it. I'm hearing what has happened and what's happening now. And I'm like, well, dang, like, what can we do? Like, what's going to help the situation? Because now everyone is being more informed. We're all informed now. There's so much information. Like you guys were saying earlier, um, stuff you didn't even learn in, in, in school that we should have learned, information that should have been passed on, and it wasn't. And now we're getting this information. Now we're learning these things. And it's like, okay, so, like, what do we do? And I think that's the biggest thing right now is the what's next. Yeah, that's a great yes. question. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good segue into what's bringing us hope. And I think a big part of what's bringing me hope is the fact that, like you said, Marisa, more and more people are talking about these issues. Um, we have a, a president right now who has talked about equity specifically. And I think that's going to be very good for black and brown communities that there is an administration that's thinking about equity versus equality. And I think that's the kind of things that we need to start hearing about. One way that people can continue to, to move the needle, like I said, you know, making that effort to do business with companies that are paying a living wage, doing business with black and brown companies um, and, you know, feeding back into those communities um, economically are things that a lot of us can do just on a daily basis. And then once again, advocating, talking to our senators, our representatives about these things that we want to see happen at the legislative level, as far as, you know, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's equal voting rights, a lot of different things are going to have a big effect on people of color. I think that that's a good way to stay involved. And I think that's what's bringing me hope is, you know, more and more we're talking about these things. And I think that it's very important. It's easy to kind of get down and, and kind of see all the issues and, you know, like, wow, we really have a long way to go. 95 years? <laughs> like, I'm not even going to be alive for that. But it's... The fact that we're even talking about these things, that there's people out there collecting the data to look at, you know, the Washington Post is publishing articles about this, um, that CNN is talking about Black Lives Matter. I mean, I think that it's a step in the right direction, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it can't be overstated, you know, how important it is to have a president now who says words like systemic racism. Like, you know, Biden's yeah. not perfect and I won't I won't spend too much time on this, but you know, he's not perfect, but you know, he recognizes this is a big problem. We need to have conversations and do something about it more importantly. But I think for me, what's bringing me hope, speaking of Biden, uh, whenever he announced that we should have enough vaccines for every adult in America to be vaccinated by the end of May or or you have the supply by the end of May and then hopefully yeah. vaccinate in the summer. So that's what's bringing me hope and making me feel alive again is the the promise of the end being in sight of all of this. So 
knowing that I can hopefully get a vaccine in a few months is I'm I can't even begin to describe how like I'm so excited about it I almost don't even know like how to feel about it because like you know like it's been like now like I'm used to like living in this like horrible like always anxious you know existence about COVID and that it's almost Mm. it's hard to feel good about something related to COVID but that news about us having enough um, supply by the end of May for every adult in America to get a shot that's what's bringing me hope. What about you Marisa do you have um, something that's bringing you hope this week? Yeah I think I think what's bringing me hope is you guys I feel like Aww. coming coming on here today, like listening to you guys and like how passionate you guys are about it and listening to all of your podcasts from uh, your previous podcasts, like you guys don't need to do this. Like it's not your job. You guys have full-time jobs and you guys have your own lives and your own stuff going on, but you're making it like your responsibility to stay informed and try to like inform other people. And I think that's a very noble task. Well, that's so sweet. Thank you. Aw, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that there's people out there listening and, yes. um, you know, that get something out of it. And I think that we'll continue to have these conversations as long as there are people um, that want to hear us talk about these things. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you all again for making the time to get together and chat about this. And... We'll see you soon. We'll be back probably in, in another month. Yeah. All right, bye. Yeah.